coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce. I don't want to die. I'm 45. I, I got a long life ahead of me, hopefully. But I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of fear, and I'm not afraid of risk, and I'm not afraid of death. What I'm afraid of is getting to the end of my life and having not done the things that I wanted to do. Yeah. And being an entrepreneur and a business owner was and is just such a part of who I am as a human being that I didn't ever want to go through my life and know that I hadn't tried it. And if I had failed with laundromats, I can promise you I would have got right back up and went right back at it again. Yeah. Because I just don't see failure as permanent. I just see it as a learning opportunity. And I know that's cliche, but that's really how I look at it. You know, yeah. it's just an opportunity to learn, get back up, dust myself off and let's go another exactly. round. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Shields. On Pass the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills, and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Up next on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have Dave Menz, who is the owner of The Laundromat Millionaire. And we get into a little story about how that name came about. He didn't name himself that, so don't don't worry about that. But Dave actually has created a amazing life for himself, for him and his family, and for many, many other people around the laundromat business. One of the things that I found really interesting was was that he correlates the laundromat business to you know helping the community and, and really about serving the community, which is a really interesting perspective when you're thinking about you know, your own business. So we talk a lot about how Dave got into this, Dave's upbringing. Obviously, that's uh, something that we always talk about with the, with the guests on the show. But but Dave comes, comes from very, very humble beginnings. And what he's been able to produce and what he's been able to create and what he's planning on creating is incredibly, incredibly amazing. So without further ado, if you're interested in any type of laundromat businesses, or purchasing laundromats or any ancillary business uh, related to laundromats, we, we cover a lot of that in today's episode. So I hope you enjoy Dave Menz today on Pass the Secret Sauce. Yeah, so, I mean, we were a pretty stereotypical poor family, <laughs> poverty. When I was a young kid, and uh, it was me, my younger sister, and my older brother, and my mom and dad, and my dad worked a pretty stereotypical nine to five job. My mom was, for the most part, a stay at home mom. She would have worked odd jobs here or there. But our dinner table was pretty, you know, I guess pretty Mayberry ish in a way. We didn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but we always had what we needed. And we, you know, I think it was a different time back then. I mean, yeah. I think yeah. it was common for people to sit around the dinner table with their children and we weren't distracted by a lot of the things that we are today. So, I mean, I would, I would describe it as very stereotypical. My mom's a pretty traditional person and my dad too. And, uh, and they kind of required that, you know, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a time where they had to told, tell you to turn off your devices or anything exactly. like that. Exactly. Um, so that was just kind of a given other than bringing a book to the table. There really wasn't anything you could do other than just eat dinner. So yeah, that was, I mean, I, I grew up, a, like I said, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, we didn't have a lot of material possessions but pretty stereotypical upbringing for the most part. Yeah. And it's interesting. Out of all the people that I've, I've asked that question to, I don't know that anybody's really made the correlation to, you know, just how different 
time is today, you know, than what it used to be when you and I both grew up. You're about this. We're, we, we, I just found out we're about the same age too. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I remember at one point we had this little tiny black and white TV. It was about this big or so that, <laughs> you know, sat on the table, right. like, you know, or the, the countertop across the room and you could, you know, you could kind of see it, but, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, yeah, completely different time. So, so when did the entrepreneurial bug hit you? When did you, uh, when did you jump into things? Was that something that you started doing when you were younger or is it not until later on in life that you really started going down that path? Absolutely early in life. Absolutely. And the interesting thing is I didn't know anyone that was an entrepreneur. My family huh? didn't really know anyone. My parents were not entrepreneurs. In fact, almost anti entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. but I, I always say, I don't, I don't know if you're born that way. I'm not exactly sure how that works. All I know is it's just always been in my heart. I guess I must've met and seen people somewhere along the journey yeah. that kind of explained to me what that was. But my dad loves to tell the story that when I was at my kindergarten graduation and they go down the line and ask the kids what they want to be when they grow up, what I said is I wanted to own my own business. Really? And I would have been five or six, probably yeah. six, I guess. Wow. Um, which is kind of crazy. So I was the stereotypical little entrepreneurial kid with the lemonade stands and the lawn mowing business. And I was a hustler. And honestly, I think a big part of it was because I grew up in poverty. Like we didn't yeah. have, you know, we were never homeless or anything like that. So, I mean, everything's relative, but I didn't really have anything I wanted, but I had for the most part, everything I needed. And so I think I just learned really early that no one was going to give me anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if I wanted anything, I had to go get it. Like I had to figure out a way to get it. And there, you know, there wasn't really any excuses. It was just a matter of being creative and problem solving and being willing to sweat and having, you know, good old fashioned grit. Yeah. So like I said, I'm not sure if you're really born that way or how that works. All I know is I don't ever remember not wanting to own my own business. So I like to say, I guess I was born that way. Yeah. Uh, but definitely some of my upbringing definitely affected it for sure. So can you remember the day? So, so I, I think you probably went through this because I did too. My parents weren't, weren't really that terribly entrepreneurial either, but so, you know, growing, growing up, you, you had these, these conservative or say conservative parents, but you know, very mm -hmm. traditional type type parents. And at first they probably thought it was cute. You know, you had your lemonade stand, you had your, you know, whatever other things that you were trying to do sort of as a side hustle. Was there a, a point when that sort of shifted where you, like where they started, like, are you sure you want to do that? You know, are you, you, are you prepared with what that is going to do to you? Like, you know, sort of trying to downplay you making that leap into something bigger, if that makes sense. Or did, have they always supported you with whatever it was that you were trying to get into? I mean, my parents were supportive in the sense of they didn't intentionally, you know, break my spirit or anything like that. They just, they didn't know anyone that were entrepreneurs, business owners that were successful. I yeah. suspect they probably knew some from a distance through a friend of a friend type of thing that had failed and had, you know, leveraged their house and went bankrupt. And I suspect that I would have to ask them, but I would suspect that's kind of the, the backstory of their feelings. So I don't think they were necessarily against it. They just, you know, when you grew up in poverty, the only thing you're interested in is trying to get to middle class. Yeah. And that's, they, they were, my parents were married with a baby in high school when they were 17 years old. So all they yeah. were ever trying to do was figure out how to not be poor. They weren't really trying to figure out how to thrive, if that makes sense. Yeah. And certainly not live their dreams. They were just trying to pay the bills. I mean, they had a young family that me two years later, so they would have been 19 or 20 and had yeah. two babies at home. Yeah. So I, I suspect that that's a big part of it. But it's interesting that, that you say that because 
I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs that were raised by entrepreneurs and it was mm-hmm. very much encouraged, inspired in them. They were taught the lessons that, you know, don't use fear, uh, you know, don't let fear stop you. And failure yeah. is per- is temporary, not permanent. I was the opposite. I mean, I was, I was just told that I'm crazy. So I'm not sure if there was a specific, I don't remember a specific incident where that translated because I, funny thing about my story is I had this childhood of being this desire to be an entrepreneur, but then I entered into corporate America. Okay. Um, as a young adult, I entered into an entry-level position right out of high school at the local telephone company here in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And it was an entry-level position. It didn't pay much, but they promoted from within. They had in, in-house training and things like that. So I had an opportunity to work up into that. So all the things I did as a kid were were probably probably what you would describe as kind of cute. And, you know, I mean, my parents encouraged me to go work for my money. If I wanted a new baseball bat, go cut grass. I mean, they were all yeah. about that. Yeah. And then when I became a young adult, I just transitioned right into corporate America. And I wouldn't say left my dreams behind, but I just kind of put it on the back burner because I always, you know, when you don't know entrepreneurship, you've always been told, well, you got to have money to make money. Yeah. So you just assume that's true. And so I was like, well, I'm an adult. I just got to figure out to make some money. I'll worry about figuring out how to own a business later. Yeah. Long story short, I worked in corporate America for 12 or 13 years and was promoted four or five times at, at the company. Ended up having a pretty standard uh, middle-class uh, lifestyle for the most part, the white picket fence and all that. And I just got to a point one day where I was like, this isn't enough. Like I'm just trading my time for money. And kind of that spirit in me from a young kid came back out. And I was like, this really isn't all it's cracked up to be, you know, the rat race. <laughs> and so that, that old, that old entrepreneurial spirit that was always kind of there, but I'd kind of tempered down. It kind of came back up in my late twenties, I guess. And I just decided to foster it and I just took off and ran with it and it, it grew into a pretty, pretty substantial business. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So what was it that, did you jump right into the laundry business? Is that the the first thing that you, you got into after leaving corporate America or did you have something else that you? The first thing that was substantial or successful. Uh, Either (laughs) we all have those stories. Yeah. Where where did you, where did you start? You know, I mean, where did, where did you jump to from? During my time at corporate America, I always still wanted to own my own business. So I was always dipping my toes in things like buying vending machines and placing them in stores and even starting a pressure washing business and all stuff that most people would consider to be side hustles. Yeah. And I didn't know if they would ever, would ever turn into anything where I could leave my job. I had a pretty good job with good benefits and stuff. So I don't know that I ever saw that, but I just always had that kind of entrepreneurial itch, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they never really, none of them really turned into anything substantial. A lot of them ended up being a lot of work, which I was already yeah. working full time. And they were just, I guess what you would call scalable, probably in yeah. a lot of ways, but I never really lost that itch. And then when I got kind of, kind of got burned out on corporate America, then I just looked at my wife one day and I said, you know, what? I've always wanted to own my own business. You know that about me. We're not really in a position to, to purchase a business or build a business right now. I don't know what to do. And this was probably around age 28 or 29. Mm-hmm. And so she and I just made the decision to, our, our incomes were kind of, you know, increasing at that point in our life. And we both decided to, uh, as a family, to just kind of live well below our means, keep our lifestyle very reasonable mm-hmm. and just start squirreling away some money for the day when we had an opportunity to buy a business. We didn't know what it would be. We didn't know what it would look like. And I didn't even really care. I've always just been fascinated by business ownership and entrepreneurship. I didn't really care what the product was. Yeah. Just the act of being an entrepreneur and solving problems and things like that. So we did that for four or five years. And during that time, as we're saving money and saving money and paying off debt, we were doing kind of both simultaneously. As we did those things, 
my itch just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was constantly looking at different businesses for sale. And I would get on everywhere you can think of business brokers, websites, you know, magazines, franchising, you know, you name it, I was looking at it. And I always came to a point where I was looking into a particular business where I just had a red flag or sometimes multiple ones come up. And it was like, this isn't for you. Yeah. And a big part of it was I knew even though we had saved up a little money that I wouldn't, whatever business I started or bought, I wouldn't be able to just leave my job right away. I needed that job to support my family. Yeah. So that eliminated a lot of businesses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so long story short, I ended up finding a local laundromat for sale here on the east side of Cincinnati near my home and found it on Craigslist of all places. And it was just laundromat for sale. And I called the guy up and I, I went up there and I looked at it. The place was just a rundown dump. It was awful which is why it was in my budget. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I, you know, I talked to the guy, I did some due diligence. I realized that this business could be run what a lot of people call semi-passive, mm-hmm. you know, kind of on the side. And I knew I couldn't do it that way forever if I wanted to scale it, but I knew I could do it temporarily. And so I checked that box and I love that it was a cash business. It was flexible, mm-hmm. flexible. I could do it around my day job, those types of things. And so we, long story short, we ended up purchasing this laundromat that was losing money. It wasn't even making money when we bought it. Wow. Very cool. And we put a lot of sweat equity into it, turned it around and turned it into a profitable business. Yeah. So you went through, I mean, just, just to get to that point now where, where you purchased your, your first, you know, real, real business per se, you know, you went through a lot of, I guess, trials and tribulations, you know, sort of with your side hustles and all that. Did you have any mentorship or education or were you reading books or anything like that along, you know, kind of in that transition period at all? Were you? I, I like to say I probably have 10,000 mentors out there and 9,999 of them have never heard of me. <laughs> <laughs> so as an example, you know, podcasts didn't exist back then, but yeah. you nowadays would be an example of someone I would consider a mentor if I were 15 year old Dave Menz, for mm-hmm. example. So yeah, anything I could get my hands on. And you know, the internet kind of came about in the early nineties, which was when I was in high school. So it wasn't what it is today or what yeah. it will be in 20 years, but there were some resources out there, but it was a lot of magazines and newspaper articles and things like that. And then as I, you know, a lot of books, but as I became an adult in my early twenties and even late teens, I mean, I couldn't hardly get a business book, a finance book, a self-help book that I, that I wouldn't read cover to cover the day I got it. Yeah. In fact, I would spend a lot of the, you know, extra money that I had on things like that. Yeah. So yeah, I've learned a ton through primarily books and magazines back in, back in the day. And then obviously when I got into my late twenties, the internet was a more, more resourceful tool. So I've learned a lot from that as well. And to this day, I, I can't get enough information on business and, you know, podcasts are an amazing thing Yeah. and can be incredibly powerful, which is yeah, why I like to do agree. this type of thing and kind of, you know, share my story. Yeah. I, lo- I love that. I love that. And any standout books, you know, that you kind of come to mind oh I see goodness. a good to great behind you, but I'm just, yes. just curious. That's definitely one of my favorites. Rich Dad, Poor Dad from Robert Kiyosaki was a, I read that when I was, I think roughly 19. Mm-hmm. So I was at a very kind of what most people would call a transitional place in my life. The Bible is a, is a, I'm a, I'm a Christian. My faith is important to me. And so the Bible has a lot of valuable lessons on life and business and things like that. Those are probably the thing that would, would jump out the most. Probably the first first book that I read, I don't know if you call it a business book, more of a finance book, is, um, what is it called? The Millionaire Next Door. Okay, yeah. Um, so I read that book probably, probably in my super early 20s as well. And like I said, I don't know that I'd call it much of a business book, but there was some, some very impactful things in there where 
I think at that point in my life, I always saw somebody being a millionaire or even successful as just like what other people did. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think I knew that I could be successful, but I just saw it as something other people did. And I think reading that book at such a young, a young impressionable age where I was trying to figure out who I was, I realized that like the guy next door could be a millionaire and he's yeah. not necessarily driving a Bugatti. Yeah. And so that was, that was really a, an eye-opening lesson for me that millionaires aren't really what society a lot of times makes them out to be, yep. that they really are just regular old people who do, you know, pretty extraordinary things and serve their community and meet a need of the laws of supply and demand and all the things that come with business ownership and entrepreneurship. So I'd say those are the four that are definitely impactful. And then I'll maybe throw a fifth in there, which is uh, E-Myth. Uh, That's yeah. been a pretty impactful book really later in my journey as I figured out mm-hmm. business systems, repeatable processes, and how important those are to being a building a scalable business versus a job. Yeah. you know, being self-employed versus owning a business. And that was a pretty impactful thing because I had always had like some ideas like that if I wanted to do something like that, but I'd never really been able to kind of put it together and even my own thoughts. And so when I read that, it was just kind of an aha moment. In fact, I read it and then the next day read it again. I read yeah. it twice in two <laughs> days. <laughs> and it's not a, it's not a real- No, that's not a thick book. or not a thin <laughs> book. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, so yeah, that really hit me hard. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I've read that one a couple of times too. And I think I have that one on Audible too. So love, yeah, me too. love Audible you know, <laughs> me too. listenings as well. So, okay. Yes. So you, you, uh, you've purchased your, your laundromat now at this point, and you said that it was a mess. You had to do a lot of sweat equity. What were some of those initial learnings? Like, wow, I probably shouldn't have done that. Or I didn't realize that going into this, you know, into this venture. Is there anything that kind of comes to mind as far as, you know, those initial learnings as to like, wow, I might've made a mistake here or, you know, that actually worked out a lot better than what I was expecting it to. I guess I'm, I'm kind of yeah. looking for the, those extremes, you know, either really, really bad or really good experience that, you know, you were kind of not expecting. Yeah. Well, I was really fortunate in the sense of because of all my reading and research over not just that business, but any business. One of the things that had stuck out to me many times was that business, even small business is a team game. Mm-hmm. And that had really been drilled into my psyche from a pretty young age, from all my readings. And so when I realized I had an opportunity to buy this local laundromat before I even closed on it, I started diving into trying to find an accountant and find an attorney. And obviously they weren't going to be, you know, on retainer or anything like that, but I just knew I needed to have those resources. And one of them was having an equipment distributor because in the laundromat business, your equipment Hmm. is your lifeline. Yeah. Um, And I was buying this rundown dumpy laundromat that was just, just awful. I mean, all 80% of the equipment didn't even work. Yeah. I didn't even know what was good and what wasn't, what to fix and what not to fix. I mean, I could look and say, hey, this place needs clean and it needs the walls painted and a remodeled bathroom. I could see those things, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't even know if I should buy it because I was like, is all this equipment garbage? I have no idea if it's yeah. even quality equipment. Hey, it's Matt. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know that I've been involved in the multifamily real estate realm for a while. It's something that I truly, truly enjoy, and I wanted you, my listeners, to be the first to know about something new coming out. We're calling it the MultiWiser Deal Room. It's a community of individuals just like you who want to get wise about multifamily real estate investing, developing, and even owning and managing your own complexes. You'll be able to network with people from all sections of the industry, from investors looking for deals, project managers looking for investors, real estate brokers, property management agencies, contractors, remodeling experts, finance gurus, you name it, we're going to have it in the network. 
I've been at this for a while, and I know it takes a community to make just one of these projects happen. And the MultiWiser Deal Room is my attempt to shorten your learning curve and get you plugged into leading experts fast who can help you close your own deals. We start off with a video glossary of over 150 commonly used terms to increase your understanding and help you get moving. Also included in the community are training videos to help you be successful, like how to put together a pitch deck, build a team, and so much more. We're going to have live interactive Zoom calls where you can ask your questions and learn from people who are actually out there in the industry doing it. For more information, go to multiwiser.com. And so I was really very fortunate, but because a couple months before I even closed on the business, I'd made an offer. I was in due diligence and I started looking around for laundry equipment distributors. And I met with several of them in the greater Cincinnati area. And some of them were okay. Some of them were not that impressive. And then I finally stumbled upon one that long story short, just ended up being an absolute gold mine, just a fantastic family, established business. They knew this industry like the back of their hand. They had actually built this laundromat for the original oh, wow. founder. Wow. Uh, back in like the mid eighties. And, and they ended up, he, the, one of the owners of the business, it was two brothers. And one of them ended up becoming my mentor before I even closed on my first store. So to have a coach slash mentor mm-hmm. to lead you through the process of any business or any industry, but especially before you even closed on it is an incredibly powerful thing. So mm-hmm. I was very fortunate that I didn't make a lot of big mistakes because I had such an amazing mentor and I had done a lot of research and homework. And once again, back to my faith, I mean, I've always been believed that you just serve people. You don't look for money and then the money will follow. And I think that's part of what attracted me to business. And so that was kind of my guiding light as far as sort of a character trait. And then I had a mentor that agreed with that, but also knew the industry really well. And then I eventually ended up joining the Coin Laundry Association, which is our, the laundromat industry's kind of trade association. And they're not a big organization because we're not a huge industry, but they're a fantastic organization for, for their size, for sure. And they, they had a tr- ton of tremendous resources. And so I, I didn't make a ton of mistakes. I mean, a, a lot of the mistakes that I made that I would consider maybe mistakes nowadays were kind of done out of necessity. I mean, I worked 90 to 100 hours a week yeah. for four or five years between my full-time job and working in this business, trying to build sweat equity and this is over the time we eventually acquired more stores and put in more sweat equity and yeah. kind of a glutton for punishment, if you will. But it was, you know, I don't, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't do it any differently because honestly, I don't think I had a choice, but I would say probably one of the biggest regrets that I have that I, that I have now that I knew I was doing back then was my youngest son was born. He was three weeks old when we closed on our first business. Wow. And we had a toddler at home and we had a 12 year old at home and my wife had a, her own career. She was a, she's a school teacher. Yeah. So talk about bad timing. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and, and she reminded me constantly, it was terrible timing and I knew it was, but the reality is like, I knew that, you know, once again, growing up poor, nobody was going to do it for me. Mm -hmm. The opportunity was here. It was a unique opportunity that I could take advantage. And I didn't feel like I could say no. So my, my point in all that is that I really feel that I, I basically missed the first three years of my youngest son's life. I mean, I worked and slept for three and a half, four years. And now I have a pretty tremendous lifestyle that a lot of dads don't have. So I, I don't regret it, but like, that's a, that's a pretty tremendous sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I did it back then knowing what I was doing. I wasn't real happy about it, but I didn't feel like I had a choice. Yeah. But most of my mistakes were, have been smaller mistakes, you know, getting shiny object syndrome, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. buying things, you know, you need to invest in your businesses constantly. And we have, which has helped make us successful. But, you know, there are situations where we bought things we shouldn't have bought, 
And, you know, I mean, it's the laundromat industry is a pretty capital intensive business. Yeah, so sure. you can pretty much trip over your shoelace and burn $50,000 without even trying. Yeah. And so we did do some things that weren't really in our best interest. And we kind of had to play defense for a year or two to kind of make up for these mistakes. But luckily for me, I had made a lot of mistakes earlier in life with personal finances. I'd personally filed bankruptcy in my young, in my early twenties, when I went through a divorce, I had already been through a lot of adversity and kind of learned a lot of the lessons that a lot of young adults don't mm -hmm. learn early on. So, and between that and having a great team and a great mentor, I was, I was pretty fortunate compared to a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah. So do you think that your experience with going through bankruptcy early on sort of gave you the, the fearlessness, I guess you can say, of, you know, making that, making that leap, taping, taking that leap, because you already knew, you know, what, you know, kind of what the, the bottom looked like, right? You've already experienced that. So, you know, how much worse could it be? Let's go ahead and try this. Do you think that that right. kind of played into things a little bit? I think it definitely did. And then another thing I'll add to not to not to beat a dead horse, but is when you're growing up poor, like you really don't have much to lose. Yeah. And I mean, we didn't have much, if anything. And so when you grow up young, like you don't really have much to lose. And so you learn sure. quickly that failure is temporary and that if you get a little something, something, then you just, you know, I mean, if you lose it, I mean, you get it right back. You were, yeah. I mean, nobody wants to go back. <laughs> if yeah, you've ever exactly. been poor, trust me, it's a lot more yeah. fun to not be poor. <laughs> so nobody wants to go back there, but you also, I, I think it's a unique situation for me mentally. And the fact that I've, you know, I'm not going to say failure or fear doesn't affect me because it affects everyone, but I don't let it control me. Yeah. And I never have. And I think part of that's my upbringing and the grit that I had to find at a very young age. I do think part of it was some, adversity, you know, through my divorce and my bankruptcy in my early twenties, that was a, you know, being a good dad was very important to me. And I had a little girl that was, the, was, and is the world to me. And so watching her go through our divorce was very impactful on me emotionally. And then just financially being devastated and having to kind of pick myself up and start back over after I'd already spent, you know, five or six years of my early adulthood trying to build, you know, not that I had much, but trying to build some type of financial stability for my family that I didn't have growing up. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't know that it, I mean, I don't feel like it made me reckless, but yeah, I don't think fear paralyzes me and failure. Well, fear doesn't paralyze me at all. Like it does a lot of people, not typically entrepreneurs, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but risk, you know, I, I'm a pretty risk averse person. So, I mean, I, you know, I try to be conservative with things, but I, I've also, I've done a lot of studying in my life and reading and research on regrets that adults have later in life. Let's call it end of life. Okay. Mm -hmm. And one of the most consistent things that stands out to me is the regret of things they wanted to do, but never did. Yeah. But you rarely hear about people at that point in their life, having regret of things they tried and failed. Yeah. They don't really regret that because they're yeah. like, Hey, I wanted to try that. I tried it. It didn't work. And I don't regret it at all. Yep. And so as I've learned these things about us as human beings, I don't like, I always say I'm running at death 150 miles an hour. I don't want to die. I'm 45. Mm -hmm. I, I got a long life ahead of me, hopefully, but I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of fear and I'm not afraid of risk and I'm not afraid of death. What I'm afraid of is getting to the end of my life and having not done the things that I wanted to do. Yeah. And being an entrepreneur and a business owner was and is just such a part of who I am as a human being that I didn't ever want to go through my life and know that I hadn't tried it. And if I had failed with laundromats, I can promise you I would have got right back up and went right back at it again. Yeah. Because I just don't see failure as permanent. I just see it as a learning opportunity. And I know that's cliche, 
but that's really how I look at it. You know, yeah. it's just an opportunity to learn, get back up, dust myself off and let's go another exactly. round. No, I love it. I love it. Yeah. And it, you, unfortunately that has become cliche, but it is absolutely yeah. incredibly true. So I love that. So, so let's talk a little bit about the, the laundry mat business. When you went in and, and decided that you're going to purchase or actually any laundry mat right now, you know, like you mentioned, it, it, it's a cash-based business. You know, how do you, how do you ensure that the cash flows are there, that it's, you know, worth what they say that it's worth or what they're asking for? You know, how do you, how do you go through that process? When you're acquiring an existing store, mm-hmm. it's, it's very difficult, which is why I was very blessed to have a mentor yeah. and, and a coach and why I do some laundromat coaching for some people across the country nowadays. The reality is I tell people it's much more of, a, of an art than a science. And it's much different than a lot of other industries, you know, real estate and you have comps and you have, you know, appraisals and all these things. It's a cash-based business. And the reality is it's, there's really not a good way. It's an art. If you know the industry, if you understand the laws of supply and demand, you understand the value of different brands of equipment, you have a good distributor, you know, all these things kind of factor in, but it would probably be a whole podcast (laughs) to, to kind of explain to you the proper way to value a laundromat because it is a cash-based business. And, you know, there's some things you can do like going around with the current owner and doing what they call coin counts. And not all laundromats are coin operated nowadays, by the way, everybody thinks they are, but our industry is evolving, but you know, back in the old days and it still happens a lot, you can go around and actually help them collect the coins. And, you know, but the problem is, I mean, nothing keeps them from going in there at midnight and just what they call loading the money boxes and just dumping a bunch of coins in there. There's really, I mean, technology's coming around in our industry. And so there are ways to check things more now than ever before. But if, if an owner wants to be deceptive about the revenue or even the expenses, and you don't know the industry, once again, how I said you could trip over your shoelace and light $50,000 on fire. Yeah. We could talk six figure losses all day. It's pretty common. But real quickly, laundromats as a general rule are in the industry are typically valued anywhere from two to five X of net operating income. Okay. So if you can kind of drill down on the net operating income, get close to what seems reasonable, you can look at things like, um, you know, utility bills are typically public record. Um, you can get them from the owner, but a lot of times you can call to, just call the water department and they'll give it to you for any address. Mm-hmm. You can do those types of things. And then if you understand the industry and you look at, okay, utilities as a percentage of sales, you know, you can kind of get some ballparks uh, is my that point. That makes sense. And then you kind of get like the, what I always tell people is when you know the industry, the red flags jump out at you really quick. When you don't know the industry, they're not really red flags. And that's, unfortunately, that's one of the kind of the dark sides, you know, every industry has dark sides. And that's one of the dark sides of ours is the thing that attracts a lot of people to the industry, meaning it's a cash-based business, Mm -hmm. is also one of the most dangerous things about the industry. And so there's a lot of people out there in our industry that have been burned and burned bad. I've, I've had people call me for coaching services that have paid $650,000 for a laundromat that was worth $200,000. Wow. Wow. And they called me five weeks after they closed. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, and there's nothing I can do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, a, I mean, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse is what they yeah. say, right? <laughs> I, I, I like the idea of, I guess, sort of auditing the, the utility bills, because then that shows you how much the laundry is actually being used, you know, how much energy is being consumed by the, the machines. And then, you know, that can tell you what the, what the traffic flow is like. Uh, is there any other ways to be able to determine whether or not it's a good location or if it's at a location that, you know, wouldn't be well served by it? Well, the one thing I'll say is when, with a laundromat business and, and 
you know, my verbiage here, you're not in the industry, but the wonder mat business is what most people refer to as self-serve, meaning people coming in, paying to rent your machines and use your machines. Um, There are other revenue streams in our industry that can sometimes be more substantial than the self-serve business. Mm -hmm. And so- Is that like washing- Washing services, professional wash, dry, fold service. Yeah. You can you can launch laundry pickup and delivery businesses that we we have in Cincinnati called Happy Nest, and now it's a nationwide thing. I'm training people throughout the country on how to launch their own pickup and delivery business, mm-hmm. and and those those can sometimes exceed the revenue streams. You know, your your primary revenue stream can become your your uh, ancillary income stream, if you will, depending on your business model. But that being said, with a laundromat, meaning the self serve business. The reality is that demographics tell you an awful lot. Mm-hmm. So the demographic reports, as far as things like household income, how many people live in a house, renters, percentage of renters versus percentage of owners. And these are all, once again, part of this art. You know, it's not a science. You can't just plug it into a spreadsheet, which is what a lot of people outside the industry try to do when they come into our industry. But the age of the equipment, how many, what they call baths, a wash, a washer uses. You can put, you can put money in a washer and it can do one wash cycle, meaning it fills up, washes, rinse, drains, and then it'll have two rinse cycles. So it would fill and drain three times. Okay. But it can also have two wash cycles and two ba- and two rinses, and it can uh-huh. have two wash cycles and three rinses. These are all options in the programming. Yeah. So the reality is you can look at the water bill, but you really have to know the age of the machine, how many gallons of water it uses, because they're all different and different manufacturers. Is the, Are the settings higher or lower? I mean, you really have to drill down into the core components to say, is this water bill high or is he, you know, underestimating his revenue? And so there's, there's just a lot of little details like that, that the only way you can drill down is to really know the industry well. And even then, even then it's an, it's an art, you can get close, but it's, it's unfortunately, it's why a lot of people get burned. And I would suspect there's probably a lot of people out there in our, in our world, in our country that have entered the laundromat industry, gotten burned and probably don't have great things to say about the business. Don't think it is a great business because they just didn't have that team behind them. So that's a big part of why I'm really fortunate. I'm also really big into networking, which a lot of people aren't in a lot of industries. And so when I first got into the industry, in fact, before I even got in the industry, I would talk to anyone that owned a laundromat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I knew everything they tell me was their opinion, you know, doesn't make it gospel. And so I, you know, over, over 12 or 13 years in the industry, I've built up I quote unquote Rolodex, aging myself a little bit there, <laughs> uh, but I've built up quite a network of people in the industry and some of which operate at what I call the bottom of the industry, meaning not very well. And a lot of which who operate at the top of the industry. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's a different world. It's a completely different world. And so once you, once you learn the idiosyncrasies of any business, the most things jump out at you. Yeah. Interesting. Now, have you started franchising at all? any of your operations or are you still, you're still doing. uh, Yeah, we don't franchise anything. I'm part of the happiness partnership, which is a national, it's a revenue sharing partnership with a technology company in Rhode Island. They're my partners. And that's the happiness pickup and delivery I was telling you about. Yep. And so basically what we do is it's not a franchise. It's a revenue share partnership. We partner with laundromat owners all over the country. We provide the technology, the marketing, the customer service, all these things. And then me and my team in Cincinnati, we fly them into Cincinnati and our team of 40 people, we spend two days training them. And then I coach and mentor them ongoing for usually the first three or four years that they launch the business. We kind of teach them the business and how to scale it, how to build repeatable processes. And then we share a national brand. So there's happiness, Cincinnati, happiness, New Jersey, happiness, yeah. Cleveland, et cetera, et cetera. 
and a lot of people think of it as a franchise and it's very similar in a lot of ways. It's a lot of, a lot of the legal stuff is really the significant difference there. Yeah. Yeah. But that's probably closer to a franchise than anything I do, but no, my, my brand of retail laundromats in Cincinnati is called queen city laundry. And that's just something that's privately owned by me and my wife. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. The reason why I was asking is I, I'm curious to see what your perspective is. If, if someone is interested in getting in the business, what would you suggest? Would, would you suggest buying an existing laundromat or creating a new one, building a new one or franchising? And I'm assuming there's franchises available out there, but any, any thoughts there if someone's looking to. Yeah. My, my opinion, there are some franchises out there. None of them are really very well established. People, people have been trying to franchise the laundromat industry for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And because it is kind of old school, antiquated mom and pop, it's really tough to do. And our industry tends to be kind of behind the curve as far as technology and things like that. So technology in the last five or six years has really been inundating our industry where it probably was doing that for a lot of other industries, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, maybe. But the, what I would tell people is that I haven't seen a franchise model in the laundromat industry specifically that brings enough long-term value to justify royalties in perpetuity. It may exist, and I just may not be aware. I'm open. I'm trying to be open-minded about what I know and don't know, but I'm not aware of any because most of the value proposition associated with a franchise in the laundromat industry is going to be the things I just talked about, the learning curve up front, being able to protect you from, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And you can get all those things, same, same thing from hiring a good coach or consultant. But when they, once they stop bringing you value, then you stop paying them. You yeah. don't pay them royalties in perpetuity. They don't really offer significant discounts on equipment. They don't have a menu. You know, they, they, I mean, they're trying to build national brands, mm-hmm. but their national brands are fairly new in the last few years. So they don't really mean anything in the laundromat industry. So a lot of the value propositions that franchises bring with, you know, unique recipes and, you know, things like that yeah. it just doesn't exist in the laundromat industry. I'm not saying it couldn't be done. There's probably 10 or 15 companies right now trying. I'm not aware of any that if I were a newbie, I would consider doing that because it's just a, it's just a unique business. Yeah. But, but I, you know, I, I firmly believe it's the best small business in America and there's some very specific reasons for that. But the reality is I don't know that franchising is the best fit for people. I encourage them to find a good mentor and coach and it doesn't have to be me. I'm not saying that to promote my services. I'm just saying that there's some good people out there that know the industry really well that can kind of help you. Some of them are equipment distributors like my mentor. Some of them are independent, like me, and things like that. I'm sorry. What was your other question regarding? I, that? Just, just if someone was looking to get into the business, yeah, what would be you know build a build a new facility, buy an existing facility? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, and the answer is it depends. Obviously, it depends on your finances because building a new store, this is a capital intensive business. Yeah. I mean, you can build a small laundromat and easily sink three or four hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. You can build a middle of the road laundromat and easily spend a million dollars, not even including real estate. So you have to have the capital and a lot of people enter this industry without a lot of capital like I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so if you don't have it, then that's not really an option for you. But assuming you have it, that doesn't necessarily mean you should build a new laundromat. What I always tell people is the laws of supply and demand are undefeated. They always win every time and you can fight them, but I don't see any reason to because in the laundromat industry, one of the things I love about our industry is so many communities are so underserved, meaning the laundromats are neglected. They're poorly run. They're poorly operated. The owners haven't reinvested in them. And so there's opportunities galore. Yeah. And every laundromat operates within what I call a submarket, which is kind of a three to five mile radius around the store. Self-serve customers 
you know, gas money is a, is a substantial part of their budget. Yeah. So yep. if they drive 10, 20, 50 miles, they got to drive 10, 20, 50 miles to get home. They just don't go very far from their house because of financial reasons. Yeah. They typically need rides places. They don't have cars. If they do have cars, they're usually pretty unreliable. And so they try not to go too far from home. For these reasons, laundromats and our primary customers, self-serve customers, they a lot of times kind of hype, go into this hyper sub-market and uh, one, one three and five mile radius is kind of the demographics you're looking at for a self-serve laundromat. So what I tell people is if you find a sub-market, let's call it that five mile radius around a particular store or location, your house, whatever, the demographics support a self-serve laundromat in that area. And there's not anyone properly serving that market, or maybe that market has 100,000 people and could easily support two or three, what I call modernized laundromats. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, and there's only one modernized laundromat there, then the laws of supply and demand are tipped in, tipped in your favor. And if you go in and acquire an older laundromat, especially if it's in a great location, and you fix it up and you modernize it with modernized payment systems and all the things that go with a modernized laundromat, I mean, it, it, it can be just an incredibly lucrative endeavor. And then the beauty of it is one of the reasons I love the laundromat industry is not just because we can make a bunch of money, but because we can serve our community. Like most people that aren't in the laundromat industry or don't use a laundromat on a regular basis or haven't at some point in their life, they don't realize that a laundromat is a vital community resource. I mean, during COVID, for, as an example, our industry was deemed essential. We never yeah. closed. Yeah. Now we, we lost some business because people were afraid to leave their houses, but we never closed. They never shut us down. And the reason for that is because we're a hygiene product. I mean, yeah. having clean clothes is an essential service, just like eating breakfast is. And so a lot of people don't realize that. And it's actually that that awareness outside of our industry is actually causing laundromats to nowadays sell for multiples of six or seven of net operating income versus two to five. So there's a lot of people that are really looking at our industry through a different, different lens. And I always tell people, if you don't have that altruistic nature, if you know serving the community, things like that aren't important to you, you're just looking at the numbers and the, the money, that's fine. The reality is the better you run your business, the more modernized it is that's the more profitable end of the industry. A lot of people think get in the laundromat industry, spend as little money as possible on your business, and then you just get to take more home. But the action, the opposite is actually true because of value proposition. Yeah. And with value proposition, people will pay more. Even low-income people will pay yeah. more for a better, you know, a better experience. And so if you run your business th- that way, you find a uh, sub-market where the laws of supply and demand are tipped in your favor as a business owner, meaning the community isn't properly served. I mean, it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing is what it really is. And it's why I'm so passionate about our industry and and uh, kind of getting get, getting the word out about how great it is for everyone. I mean, it's a it's you know, it's a true win-win. And there's there's a lot of situations in business where it's a win-lose proposition. Somebody has to lose to, in order for somebody else to win. And I, I I really look for and try to be a part of win-win propositions in business. And, and that's part of why I love this industry. I love it. I love it. Yeah. What, what's next for you, would you say? What, what do you uh, what do you have your sights on now? Appreciate you asking that. Yeah. So I, uh, I recently started a podcast. Uh, it's called Laundromat Millionaire Business mm-hmm. Podcast. It's on all the streaming channels and YouTube. And that's something I'm doing to try to bring awareness to the industry from people outside the industry. So we have guests on that are outside the industry. And I, I, I finished my book. It's being published as we speak. Oh, very cool. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. It's called Laundromat Millionaire. And uh, it'll be out in late October, probably, of this year. So the manuscript is finished, which is the hard part for me. Yeah. <laughs> and so now I turn it over to the pros and let them work their magic. But yeah, it's in publishing right now. So I'm excited about that. 
And those are both kind of the same thing, just trying to get the word out to the community or, or to, the, to the world about our community and what, what a great business it is, but how you can also serve, serve you know, local communities with an essential you know, community resource at the same time. So those are kind of my two big things. I do coaching for people that are entering the laundromat industry or interested in pursuing it to try to help them avoid some of the things that we just talked about. And that's something I'm pretty passionate about. And, uh, and I'm able to do these things because I have the time because I've built very intentionally, you know, back a minute ago, we talked about e-myth and I've been very intentional about my businesses and building processes and procedures. And so a lot of small businesses are, you know, the business owner owns a job and they have yeah. to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. They are the business or at least a part of it. Yeah. And that was the case early on for me, no doubt. But what we've been able to do over 12 or 13 years in the industry is just continue to reinvest a good portion of our profits back in building layers of management. And so we're, we're fully attended and we have drop-off laundry services. We have these pickup and delivery businesses. You know, we have, we have a general manager. We have an assistant general manager that runs all four of our stores. We're currently building a fifth store. Mm-hmm. So we've been able to build those processes and procedures that are repeatable and scalable so that I can work on my business versus working in my business. And that frees me up to do some other things because I'm passionate about my businesses. Yeah. But it frees me up to do other things like write a book and try to inspire people both in the laundromat industry to take their businesses to another level and serve their community more in the same thing with a podcast. So those are, those are some things I'm pretty passionate about at this point in my life, just trying to bring value to people and inspire. You know, I always tell people a lot, I, I do a lot of this stuff because as a little, you know, I call it the 10 year old Dave Men's. as a little kid, I was inspired by people like you and me doing what you and me are doing right now. Yeah. And so I, that's, I just see it as my way of kind of paying it forward is telling my story, being very real and transparent about it. And that's kind of what my book is all about. It's not just like laundromats 101, although that's certainly a part of it. It's more of what I call kind of a teaching memoir. So it's kind of my story of, you know, kind of the backstory of, you know, my life, my childhood and poverty, and then, you know, some adversity that I went through, you know, my bankruptcy, my divorce and things like that trying some things in business that didn't work, losing some money, and eventually, you know, what I call cracking the code and figuring it out and, uh, and, and being successful. And so the, the laundromat millionaire tag was actually given to me by someone that was just, they heard me on another podcast and they were like, hey, you're the laundromat millionaire guy. And I was just yeah. like, you know, I, I understand marketing. And I was like, yeah. you know what? I mean, I have a message. I can either, it's, sticks. well, it's kind of brash. Yeah. <laughs> and if I gave it to myself, it'd be pretty yeah, arrogant, true. I would guess. And a lot yeah. of people kind of make that accusation, which I get it. I, I would probably think that too. <laughs> but the reality is I, I get marketing and I have a message that I want to share with the world. And, and uh, so I just decided when they gave me that, I call it a nickname, I just decided to kind of embrace it and run with it. So that's what we call our podcast. And that's what I call my coaching services. So people can reach me at laundromatmillionaire.com. That's my website. I love it. And that's, that's what the book's going to be called too. Yeah. I love it, Dave. This is, this has been fantastic. I, I absolutely love the, 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 the path that you've taken and everything that you've shared and I've looked at at laundromats myself to purchase as right? well. So yeah, so maybe maybe one day I'll call you and you yeah, know, we'll, love to we'll help you. Uh, yeah we'll uh, work something out there. So no, very very cool. You know, certainly appreciate the time and uh, I, uh, I wish you but not, nothing but success. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening and remember, pass the secret sauce.